Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. Some of you were not able to uh, make it last week, and we understand that because of uh, the Michigan weather that we had that held off for so long but has now come upon us. And so uh, we actually, uh, I did more of an extemporaneous sermon and held off uh, on this, our second in our Pillars series, having looked at uh, being together under the Word and now this morning together in prayer. I was struck a few weeks ago as I was preparing for this sermon as I came across an article written by uh, a man who uh, works for Lifeway, uh, one of our, uh, the publishing arm of our denomination. He had spent two years working among the churches in Romania. And in that article, he talked about how much he learned specifically from them about prayer. He said that a typical Sunday morning service started at 9 a.m. with a full hour of prayer. He said different churches conducted that time of prayer differently. He said the bigger churches had just an open time of prayer where anyone who wanted to could pray until the pastor prayed and closed that down. Smaller churches, though, would go row by row, allowing uh, anybody in each row as they wanted to offer up petitions to God. The author went on to say that for the Romanian believers, quote, prayer matters. Prayer is not a waste of time, end quote. I was struck in part because of the comparison in my mind of, uh, or rather to, another church that I had visited um, a, a while back, and uh, they had a prayer time right in the middle of the service, similar to how we do at the end, where if because of anything going on in your life or because of what you heard in the sermon, you want to talk to a pastor and have them either uh, counsel you or pray for you, uh, they had this time actually in the middle of the service. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's interesting, before the, the, the sermon got started. But, um, but then it was kind of like uh, left a sour taste on my mouth because it was like they sang two songs, they had the prayer time in the sermon, they had a second service, which meant that prayer time could not be any length at all. I think it was maybe three minutes. Uh, come, get prayed for, and then, and then we're, we're, we're done, we're, we're moving on, uh, sitting up to sing the next song before the sermon uh, while other people were finishing up their prayer time. Prayer didn't seem as if it was really that important given the placement in the service. That being said, they still did better than some. Many churches today don't have a prayer service at all. It's gone all together. You cannot find any time where the members of that church will gather together for the purpose of praying together before God. In fact, the only prayers that you might find would be uh, before the offering or perhaps before the sermon on a given Sunday. All of that should cause us to ask this question, just how important is prayer to us? Not just individually, but corporately as a church. How important is it for us to come? Not just individually, but together for praise and confession, for thanksgiving and the offering up of our concerns before God. Can we actually get along in our life and ministry together without His help? As we continue this pillar series, uh, really up until this year, we've really been focused on uh, individual application, uh, the word and prayer for us individually. And this year, we've opened that up to say, what about the word and prayer for us together. And when we think about specifically praying together, we need not look much beyond just the New Testament letters to see explicit commands. God telling us, commanding us, not suggesting, not saying this is a good idea, this might be helpful for you in your ministry programming, but commanding us to pray together as His people. 
We often read the New Testament letters and immediately jump to individual application. That's not a bad way of reading them, but it's not the only way. It even shouldn't be the first way necessarily. Because you'll remember that these letters are written not to individuals, but to churches. So just, for example, thinking of Paul's letters, when he says things like this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Or, be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Or, continue steadfastly in prayer. Or, pray without ceasing. He is writing in the plural. If we were down south, we'd say, y'all be praying without ceasing. Up here, it might be, you guys pray without ceasing. He intends for the entire church to be praying together. God intends for us to pray not just for one another, but also with one another. And we see that actually played out by example in the life of the early church in the book of Acts. Prayer shows up uh, 14 times in the first 15 chapters of Acts alone. We also see a specific emphasis on the church praying together. For example, as soon as Jesus ascended to heaven, we read that all the disciples came to Jerusalem. And in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 1, all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All of those that were disciples had gathered together and they were praying. Later in the chapter, when they pray for wisdom to choose uh, Matthias to replace Judas, they're praying together. Maybe not the entire church, but certainly a large gathering of them. Then all 120 disciples, everyone who was a Christian at that, at that moment, were praying together when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. Later in chapter 9, Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the first Gentile mission trip. We're thankful for that because we're Gentiles. Apart from that, we may not be here as Christians right now, but that's how God used it. And how did it come about? Through the church gathered together to prayer. Went to pray when God spoke to them and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the task that I have appointed for them. The point I want you to see is that the early church was marked by prayer, but specifically corporate prayer. They were devoted to it. That's what God tells us in chapter 2. After the Spirit falls, 3,000 people get saved. What does this, church, this new church do? We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We would put that in maybe more modern language. We would say that they devoted themselves to gospel-centered biblical teaching, a shared life and ministry, worship at the Lord's table, and praying together. That seems like a pretty simple recipe for what? For a healthy, God-designed church. For the next few verses, here's what we read. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This group of believers became the people that God desired them to be. They became a loving, faithful, serving, growing church. Being together in prayer was central to that identity. It was central to their becoming the people that God wanted. And the question that we want to put before you this morning is simply this. Is that, as much as we say that it is, in reality, is that really part of Crossway's identity as a church? The emphasis on praying individually and corporately. We could spend weeks unpacking um, 
the, this idea, what it would look like, but we want to just get a snapshot this morning from Acts chapter 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 23 through 31, but in order to get the whole picture, to understand what we're going to look at, we want to begin reading at verse 1. As the apostles were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed to them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God. Emerging from the text is a picture of the church in prayer. We not only see the priority of the practice, but also the request that they made when they prayed together. And if we see them not just as an example of what happened, but as an example of what should happen in the life of God's people then we need to commit 
to two things. First, to pray with the assembly of God's people. To pray with the assembly of God's people. We saw in the opening verses the beginnings of the persecution of the early church. Uh, at this point, things have been going well. They've, they've only been around for a couple weeks maybe. And yet, persecution is breaking out. Why? Because they were preaching Jesus. 5,000 people get saved. The religious leaders get annoyed. Peter and John get tossed in the clink. They come to interrogate them. And what do they get? A sermon on the power of Jesus to heal and to bring salvation. They don't know what to do with them. So they say, let's just give them a warning. Don't preach about Jesus anymore. And they say, well, listen, you can judge whether we should listen to you or God, but we know who Jesus is. We saw him die. We saw him raised. We saw him heal this man, and we need to preach Jesus. Luke tells us that they were let go, and when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So if we're going to follow their example, if we're going to assemble to prayer, then we need to first pursue the priority of fellowship. We need to pursue the priority of fellowship. Don't miss the obvious in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported the chief priests and the elders what it said to them. Now think about the priority here. They've been threatened, imprisoned, maybe even roughed up, set free. Where do they go? They go to their friends. Or your translation might say to their company or something like that. Either way, the point is they go to the believers. Now, why do I point that out? Well, who's preaching? Peter and John. We don't know anything about John, but we know for a fact from the Bible, Peter's married. Peter has kids. He has a family. And you would think that's where he's going first. I want to go let my wife and my kids know, hey, I'm okay. That's not what the text says. Text says he goes to the church and prays. That's someone might say, well, well, maybe, you know, maybe his family was with the church, maybe the church was with his family. That's fine. Text doesn't tell us that, but even if that's the case, and maybe we could even say that's a good assumption to make, it only strengthens the point that the church had gathered with the family that was uh, fearful of what was going to happen to their husband and their father. Or that the family had gone to the comfort and safety of their friends and the church during this time. Either way, what we see is their first instinct, these early believers, was to gather together and pray with one another. That was their first instinct. That was the first thing that they did. That was the priority for their lives. We could take many things away uh, thinking in terms just an application, but um, you know, one of the things we just, we just have to think about is um, where are our first instincts when trouble lies? And where is the priority in our lives of gathering together with God's people to pray? Those of you that are members, you know that uh, historically we have struggled to have um, a even reasonable amount of people regularly attending our prayer service. And we've tried to move that around and do some other things. And sometimes I hear, well, it's not a good time. That's fine. You tell us a good time and we will move that service. Because as elders, we are committed that this needs to be a priority. It's not going to go away. It can't go away. Because the moment it goes away, any kind of organized time for the church to pray, then we have fallen below the basic standard that God has set in the Scriptures for a New Testament church. Yeah, maybe we follow the Romanian practice. Uh, given our size and our commitment to the safety of children, it's very hard to assemble the right amount of teachers right now. So maybe we just say, you know what, for a season, we're just going to skip Sunday school. And we're just going to come at 9.30 and we're going to spend an hour in prayer. 
Then we're going to take 30 minutes and we're going to eat some food. We're going to fellowship with one another. And then at 11, we're going to come in the worship service. I'd be happy with that. The question is, where do the priorities lie? Where is the emphasis going to lie? Where are we going to say, rather than what I prefer or what I like or whatever else, this is what the New Testament says. This is what God has declared we must be doing as his people. And how are we going to do it? Give us your ideas. Give us your input. We want to provide the place, the opportunity, where the maximum amount of people can gather together with one voice lifting their request to God, just like we see commanded and exemplified by the early church. We need to pursue the priority of fellowship, but secondly, we need to pursue the unity of prayer. We need to pursue the unity of prayer. When they heard the report of Peter and John, they lifted their voices together to God. Because of that plural voices, I think that all of those gathered together actually prayed. Now, why do I make that point? Because we only actually have one prayer listed here. It, I, mean, it's, I mean, I don't think they're all like quoting this prayer together. I don't think that's what happened. I think we either have the first prayer or uh, a prayer that Luke was able to, to have somebody else say, oh, I remember this was prayed that day. Or maybe even this is the kind of prayer that was prayed. It, it's representative. The point is, though, they lifted their voices together to God. They were unified when they came together to pray. It wasn't just we're all in the same place. We all have different concerns in our mind. We all have different things that we're thinking about. No, they were lifting their voices together in unity to pray. Praying together as a church means it's not just we're in the same room. We have the same mind, the same priorities, offering the same kinds of prayer. Practically speaking, how do we do that? What does it look like? Well, first of all, it means that we're thinking about the fact that we're assembled as God's people when we pray, even in our language. If we're praying together, we don't say, I, me, mine, you know, like the old Beatles song, I, me, me, mine. That's not the mindset, right? That whole thing was about the selfishness of the Beatles and why they broke up. There's a little history lesson for you. That's not, even in the language, is that how we're coming? No, it's not how we should be coming. We are gathered together in the name of Christ. We are coming together to seek the benefit of this church. We are coming together because we want to see the Spirit of God empower us for ministry. But more than just the language... It's about the concerns for the body. It's about praying in such a way that we're thinking about the church as a whole. What is our vision for who we want to be as a church? What is our mission? What are we to be about doing? Those are the kinds of concerns that we should be praying for. Even more practically, we should be thinking about the person that's praying. Praying together does not just mean we're listening into someone's private devotions. I don't know who said that, but I heard somebody say it years ago. So you can find it, we'll footnote it later. We're, we're praying with the person praying. So one of the most helpful things I ever heard by way of advice when I was a kid was from my dad. And uh, I was just, you know, frankly, like most kids, probably bored out of my mind um, when, when it came to, to prayer time. Because we're all just sitting there, our eyes are closed, and people are talking, and you're just thinking like, oh my goodness, will it ever stop? And he said, well, listen, he said, you need to pray with them. I said, what does that mean? You know, I got my eyes closed, my hands are folded. He says, yeah, but that doesn't mean you're praying. He says, listen, either in your head or out loud, listen to the words they're saying. Listen to the things they're praying for and then agree with them. Either, either in your heart before God or out loud, yes, Lord, amen, Lord. Yes, that's what I want too. And even as someone in junior high, that changed the dynamic of when I gathered together with God's people. It allowed me to actually engage and be a part of the service. And I think that probably many adults will find that helpful as well. 
You're not just thinking through, what am I going to pray when it's my turn and nobody else is praying? No, 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 no. Listen to what is being prayed and join your heart and your mind with them and make that your prayer together with them. Lastly, thinking about uh, uh, unity in prayer, it means we actually should pray. Uh, Derek Prime is a very famous uh, pastor in the United Kingdom. I think he's recently retired and he's got a great little book um, called Practical Prayer. And he talks about when he was a brand new Christian as a teenage as a teenager. Um, it could have been a college student. I'm trying to remember now, but anyway, uh, he's a young man, and he goes. He gets saved. He goes to a prayer meeting. He just sits there the whole time and listens. And there was an elderly lady that was sitting next to him, and she said, "Hey, it was good that you came to the prayer meeting today." She goes, "Next time, why don't you pray?" And he was like, "What?" And he was like, "You know, I mean, you know, he was kind of nervous. He's scared." And she was like, "Yeah, when we come together, we pray. So next time when we come next week, open your mouth and say something." And he said he was pretty put off at first and nervous and anything about it, but he came next week and she kind of smiled at him and winked. And sure enough, he prayed. He says, and I've been praying in prayer meetings ever since. When we're coming together, it's more than just offering some, some ideas, more than just offering some, some basic concerns. We're thinking about what does it mean to pray together as God's people? From the language to the content to the actual opening our mouths and speaking before God and one another. We're praying with one mind as God's people. And therefore, we should be praying not just assembled as God's people, but even when we come together, what we pray for should be affected. We should be praying for the advancement of God's kingdom. This is the second thing that we want to see this morning, that when we pray, we need to be praying for the advancement of God's kingdom. One of the things we need to come to terms with, and I know at first people find somewhat offensive but it's true, and that is not every prayer request is equally important. You understand what I'm saying? Not every prayer request is equally important. Does that mean it's wrong to pray about certain things? Yes and no. Yes, if it's a sin issue. Right? So I read in a book a long time ago about a young lady who was dating a non-believer, and she's going to the pastor saying, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if I should break it off or not. And he walks through and shows her verse after verse after verse why this is not what God wants. Someone who is a Christian is fundamentally at odds with someone who is not, and therefore they should not pursue a relationship with one another. And at the end of the day, she goes, yeah, I just don't know. I still think I should seek God's wisdom. And he's like, what's the matter with you? Right? Do you have to pray about whether or not it's okay to get drunk on a Friday night? No. Do you have to pray about whether or not it's okay to use profane language at work? No. Bible is pretty clear. Christians control their drinking and control their mouth. You don't pray about sin issues, right? And so in that sense, no, there are some things you just don't pray about. You just obey. You just do it. But yes, beyond that, everything can be brought before God in prayer. I've lost my keys before late to come to this service and have been running to the house like a madman. Where are my keys? And I've had to stop and say, God, please, I don't know where these keys are. Please help me to find them. And when God helped me find those keys, guess what I did? I stopped. And I said, thank you, God, for helping me find those keys. It's okay to pray about the smallest things, right? Isn't that what Jesus and, and Paul says? In everything, bring your petitions before God. But here's the thing. What may be important to me or even to my family pales in comparison to what is taking place when I'm gathered together with God's people. So on a Sunday morning, when we're standing here and we're seeking to offer prayers on behalf of the whole church, I don't say, oh, and Father, remember my son who's sick today. Why? Is that important to me? Yes. Is it important to others? Hopefully. 
But when we're gathered together in God's church, we have so much more important things, so much more urgent things. The health of my son is not going to make or break the advancement of God's kingdom. And so notice, what do the people pray for? How do they pray when they come together? They've just been roughed up. They've been in prison. Maybe they've got, you know, I mean, you just think about all the different things that you can think of. And what do they do? First of all, they seek encouragement from God's sovereignty. And so should we. We should seek encouragement from God's sovereignty. This is the basis from which they have boldness in prayer. Persecution comes. What is their first response? To pray. What do they pray for? They remember God's sovereignty. Verse 24. They lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is the creator of all things as well as the Lord of all things. In other words, he didn't just make it. He is king. Nothing happens apart from his will. That's what they believe. And that means not just the animals and the stars and the birds. That means people. God made people too. Are people different than animals? Yeah, you betcha. Right? So we're talking about pro-life things this morning. We prayed for those things. You have a court case where some monkey was used for something and his picture was taken and they made money off of it and someone tried to argue that the money, the monkey should get compensation from the money that was made. Now, why, why, why is that even in the courts? Because there are people who think there is no difference between you and a monkey and an ant in the road. And if all three were there and their car was out of the control, they would not be able to decide who not to hit. So are people different than animals? Yes, but they're the same in this. They're made by God who is sovereign over all people and all things. And so here's what they say. Even people fall under their control, and that becomes the focus of their prayer. They pull out Psalm 2 from the Bible, and they apply it to their lives. They pray, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said with the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Application. How do we see that? How do they know that? Verse 27, For truly in this city. In other words, we, we see this happening today, God. Truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Verse 26, Psalm 2, the Lord and his anointed. What do we see? Against God and his holy servant, Jesus, whom he anointed. Who was set against him? The Gentile rulers who are raging, the peoples plotting in vain, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. But look at verse 28. They were rebelling to do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. So you see these two massively important connections brought together here in the span of a few verses. The responsibility of every person for his actions and the complete and utter sovereignty of God over all things, including those actions. Who killed Jesus? All those who conspired against him on the earthly level, Jews and Gentiles alike. From the, from the youngest, most unimportant guy who was yelling, crucify him, crucify him in the crowd of the Jews to Pontius Pilate who said, you know, I don't want to make trouble. I wash my hands of the whole thing. Here's Barabbas. There's your, there's your king. You can kill him. They're all accountable. That's what, that's what they pray. The crucifixion of Jesus was an atrocity, and those that were a part of it will be judged for their role in the most terrible sin in all of, the human, that in all of human history has taken place. But at the same time, those Christians didn't think that Jesus died as an accident. They didn't think that he was an unwilling participant. He said these men did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. 
God sent Christ as the promised Savior, and as that Savior, the Messiah, he fulfilled the role of God's anointed from Psalm 2. He is the exalted king who stands far and above every nation and the nations rebel against. But all of that rebellion is in vain. Isn't that what Psalm 2 says? Why? Because God's in control. He's sovereign over all things. In Psalm 2 it says, he laughs at them. The nations plot, they shake their fist at God and God says, you think I'm scared of that? Think you're actually going to do something against what I want to have happen? Even when you think you're rebelling and doing something sinful, you're just a tool in my hand to bring about my plans. What plan? Salvation of humanity. These people think they're killing Jesus because he's a blasphemer. What they don't realize is God is using them to bring about a propitiating sacrifice whereby all of his wrath against the sins of his people will be fulfilled in Jesus' death so that we might be saved. For some, the doctrine of God's sovereignty seems oppressive and stifling, stifling, maybe even offensive. But for these early Christians, it was the assurance that when they went to God in prayer, he could actually do something about what was going on in their lives. It's not enough just to say, well, I just think God's a heavenly father. Really? Well, you know, well, I've got an earthly uncle. Say, God is love, my uncle loves me. Lives with a, this is hypothetical. I mean, I do have an uncle, but, um, you know, we're not in good relationships. He doesn't like me because I'm a Christian, so this is, this is theoretical here. I have an elderly uncle. He lives with my elderly aunt in a retirement home. They love me. They send me Christmas gifts and cards, but they're stuck. They're wheelbound chair, uh, uh, wheelchair bound. They can't get out. They can't do anything. And if people are persecuting me because I'm Christian, do you think I'm going to call for to help? Call out to them for help? No. Why? Because love doesn't do much if there's not power behind it. What the Bible says is that God is the supreme manifestation of love. If there is any love in the universe, it is because it has flowed out of Him. But guess what else? He's not just loving. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. So when He says, in love, I want to save sinners, He doesn't have to wring His hands and wonder how it's going to happen. He makes it happen. And he even uses the sinful, wicked actions of humanity to bring it about. And the people of God in the New Testament say, yes, that is the basis for my prayer. That is why I have confidence that God can actually do something. You lose the sovereignty of God. You say, well, he gives man free will. Well, guess what? Then God's not answering your prayer. Because in order to answer your prayer, something's got to give. Either inanimate objects or the hearts of wicked people. And you know what Proverbs says? Every decision is in the heart of the king. But God holds the king in his hand. Every decision he makes is actually superintended by God who is overseeing the process. Our Heavenly Father is powerful enough to intervene in human history. He is more than able to hear our every prayer and answer our every need. Be encouraged by the sovereignty of God when you pray. Even in the midst of pain and suffering and persecution, be encouraged that God is bringing about His perfect plan for all of history, a plan centered on Christ. That's what they pray. And that's why we should not just seek encouragement from God's sovereignty. But when we pray, gathered together as God's people, we should pray seeking the exaltation of God's Son. Seek the exaltation of God's Son. They have a view of human history that is all centered around Christ. They got that from the scriptures. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures and the focus of God's plan. So, having been encouraged by God's power, they ask now for three things. And now, Lord, you're sovereign. Everything has happened according to your will. And now, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. 
and stretch out your hand to heal and with, with signs and wonders being performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So look upon their threats. That's their first request. What is this? They're saying, God, look, pay attention to what's happening. You know, we are speaking the name of Jesus and people are threatening us. They are seeking to shut it down. God, look upon their threats and act accordingly. Don't, don't let them stop the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Now, they've already been speaking the word boldly, we're told. But guess what? There's no guarantee they're going to do that. There's no guarantee they're going to continue with that boldness. Even the apostles are mere men and can be frightened into being timid with their message. So the second thing they pray is continue, grant that we can continue to do what we've been doing, speaking your word with all boldness. Now, again, we need to be careful in what we think about that word boldness means, especially for us today. Once again, it's, it's right to life or, or, or pro-life Sunday, and we can, we can be a voice for the voiceless and speak out against abortion, but we have to do more than just speak out against abortion. We also have to proclaim the gospel. As I prayed earlier, abortion is not the most damnable sin in the world from which there is no forgiveness. It needs to be stopped. The killing of innocent babies needs to be stopped. But how is it going to stop? By people believing in the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the day. Even if we pass a law that says no more abortion, guess what? We pass a law that says no murder. People still murder, right? They're shooting people down in the streets. We preach the gospel. That is where our boldness lies. Do we condemn sin? Absolutely. But even more, we proclaim the love and the grace of God that overcomes and forgives sin. That's the boldness that we see here in this passage. Here's the message, verse 12. There is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's where our boldness should lie. That's what we pray for. And if you believe that message today, guess what? The same persecution they faced, you're going to face today. I mean, you think about the headlines today, all of the, all of the trash talking that's going on against Wheaton College in Illinois right now because they put one of their professors... Um, you know, they took disciplinary action. And um, the, the news will say that's because she showed solidarity with Muslims, that she said that she was going to wear this traditional uh, hijab because of the way they're being mistreated in this country and around the world, and because she was the first tenured black woman who was a professor. Uh, the news media said, well, obviously the school trustees is run by old white guys. They don't like all that, and so they're wanting to, they're, they're wanting to discipline her and get her out. But they shouldn't be able to do it because she's got tenure. Well, here's the problem. The issue was not the wearing of the hijab, as unwise as that probably was. That wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't whether she's black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whatever. The point was, she said, I'm doing this because Muslims and Christians, we all worship the same God. Now, here's the thing. Wheaton's a religious school. It's a Christian school. And so to teach there, she must affirm a doctrinal statement that includes this. Quote, we believe in one sovereign God, eternally existing in three persons, the everlasting Father, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Guess what? Muslim can't affirm that. And if a Muslim can't affirm that, that means we don't worship the same God. Does that mean we hate people who don't worship the same God? No, we seek their salvation. We are kind towards them. We love them. We might even protect them against people that would do them harm. But at the end of the day, we cannot affirm that we worship the same God. That's... That's the issue at hand here. We in college is taking a statement and saying, no, we don't worship God because they cannot affirm that Jesus is anything more than a prophet. They don't even affirm that he died to make salvation. 
And what is the message upon which we must be bold? There is salvation in no one else. It's not Muhammad, it's not Allah, it's not Krishna, it's not any other God you can come up with, but it is through Jesus Christ who died for sins. And so even now, you see Wheaton College suffering persecution because they're drawing the line in the sand and saying, this is not a cultural debate, this is a theological debate. We don't worship the same God. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you think about how easy it would be for them to just throw in the towel. Right now, we live in a shame culture like it is mind-boggling. You say one wrong word on Twitter and you're dead. You are just dead in the water. I mean, they'll just, they'll gut you like a fish. I mean, people ascending to positions of power in companies because they donate to something 10 years ago, suddenly, oh, we can't have them, and they lose their job. So we've become not a more tolerant society, we've become an intolerant society. Think about how easy it is for us today, just in Bay City, Michigan, where most of the stuff is not on our radar. Someone gets mad, someone makes a public spectacle, someone puts something on your Facebook page, and you want to just close your lips and stop talking about Jesus. You want to stop talking about how he's the only way of salvation. Someone says, you think everybody who's not a Christian is going to hell? There's only one way to answer that. Yes, because that's what God says in his word. And therefore, our church gives money, our church sends people, our church works with other people to, to, to go across the street and across the globe to tell people about Jesus so they don't die and go to hell apart from him. It's easy to be afraid to say anything about the gospel. And so this is why the apostles say, help us to continue to be bold in what we do. The third request that we should, that they pray and that we should pray as well, and that is in our prayers, we should seek the empowerment of God's spirit. We should seek the empowerment of God's spirit. They say, look on your enemies and give us boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice how God answers the prayer in the very next verse, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Is that what they were praying for? Yep. Did God give it? Yep. If we pray for that, will God give it? Yep. It doesn't matter if healings come about, if buildings shake. The important thing is that we are shaken. Shaken out of fear or complacency or hard-heartedness and so filled with the divine power of God's Spirit, we actually live like God's people. We actually speak like God's people with boldness to those around us. And so we should be praying for God's Spirit to manifest His power among us. Now, sometimes we talk about the power of God's Spirit and we get nervous because we've seen others on television or friends that we have and they get so narrowly fixated on the Spirit that things get kind of wacky. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, people talking nonsense gibberish in worship services, people barking like dogs or rolling around on the floor, taking off their suit coat and hitting people, uh, knocking them all over the place, you know? Um, those kinds of false witness experiences where the Spirit of God is not really being manifest should not keep us from seeking a true manifestation, a true experience of the Spirit that God desires us to have. Paul even commands in Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. So he's telling us that we ought to live and pray in such a way that God's Spirit fills our lives. 
think about it like this. Uh, I read, uh, it's probably a made-up story, probably didn't really happen, but uh, it illustrates the point well. There was a little boy who one time asked an old sailor as they were sitting on the dock together, what, what's the wind anyway? What, what is it? And the sailor replied, you know, I don't really understand it, but here's what I know. I can hoist up the sail of the ship and we go someplace. Maybe the workings of the Spirit of God and His filling are mysterious to you. You don't understand it. But Derek Thomas is right when he says, all of us can raise a sail, spiritually speaking, and say, Lord God, I can't do this on my own. Whatever it is you're asking me to do, I need your help. Strengthen me by your Spirit. As many have said before, the passage opened with the church being shaken by the world. Then the church was shaken by God. And what was the result? The church, in turn, shook the world. And how did it happen? With a prayer meeting. With a prayer meeting. How important is it to you that we pray? How important is it to gather together with God's people in church? William, Cow- uh, William Cooper was the, is, is the author of several hymns that we sing. Probably his most famous is, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. He attended John Newton's church, who also wrote famous hymns, including Amazing Grace. And in his memoirs, Cooper talks about the members of the church meeting for prayer at 6 a.m. on Sunday mornings. He says he attended those meetings regularly, and later he recalled them in his journal like this. On Sabbath mornings in winter, I rose before day and trudged, often through snow and rain, to a prayer meeting in the great house. They are always found 40 or 50 poor folks who preferred a glimpse of the light of God's countenance and favor to the comforts of a warm bed or to any comforts that the world could afford them. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Father, may that not be true of us at this place. God, we pray that we would be a praying people. God, even now we ask that you would continue to work the truths of this passage into our hearts and motivate us, encourage us, God, even correct us. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Help us to follow the example that we find in the New Testament. Help us to follow the commands you've given in the New Testament to be a people who pray, not just individually, but together as your people. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.